Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 as we focus on the topic at hand, which is the sanctity of human life. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 13. As Peter writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to instruct the church, to encourage the church in her witness, specifically her witness to the gospel and the response of an unbelieving world to that witness. And as one application... We're going to talk about how we can be prepared to make a defense. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, he's a realist, right? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness, do it with respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Before we go any further, Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of the saints that has been handed down to us, preserved by your spirit in this world so that we can know what you have said to us. And as we look to Peter this morning, as we look to your word this morning, we we see this reality that for those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution in many different forms whether it's through the bold proclamation of the gospel or simply living out and doing deeds of righteousness in response to that gospel. And we are to respond to those who stand against us by giving an answer for the hope that we have, especially the hope that we have with regard to the unborn life in the womb. And so Lord, as I seek to apply this text to our lives in this particular cultural moment, would you accomplish your purpose I have every confidence that there are individuals in this room who have this issue very heavily laid on their heart because of past experience. And I pray that your grace and your kindness and the abundance of the love that you have shown us through Christ would rest on their hearts as well. And for those of us who are here, maybe we are undecided on this issue, Lord, I pray that the evidence manifest in your word and in science and just in common sense would bear its weight upon our hearts to convince us of the truth. And for all of us, Father, I pray that you would equip us so that we can be prepared to honor you, to be respectful and gentle with those to whom we even are opposed by, but Father, that we can be a light for your sake in this world in the days that you've called us to live. That's my prayer. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some moments in life that are pivotal moments, monumental moments. 
And they're the kind of moments that people talk about from the perspective of where they were and what they were doing when they happened. And one generation remembers where they were and what they were doing when they heard the news of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. You hear those stories. Or the day World War II finally came to an end. Some remember where they were and what they were doing the day Kennedy was assassinated. And the vast majority of people in this room could tell me where you were and what you were doing on the morning of September 11th, 2001. These memories, these pivotal, monumental memories are etched into our lives. We remember the setting, we remember the time of day, we remember the room we were in, and we we had at least in that moment some sense that this day, this moment, this event is going to make an impact on my life going forward that I can't fully understand. But we just know it when it happens. And these days don't happen often, but I believe that in 2022, we could add another such moment to the list. It was Friday morning. My wife and I were getting ready to work out at our local gym. And when we came into the gym, the, the news on the screens upon the wall were telling us that Roe v. Wade had been overturned. It was June 24th, 2022. The U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that the Constitution of the United States does not and never has declared a woman's right to abortion. The Dobbs decision, as it is known, effectively reversed Roe v. Wade. And and we talk about Roe v. Wade all the time in these discussions, right? The Roe decision, which was handed down in 1973, discovered within the Constitution that abortion on demand was a basic human right for women in America based upon the constitutional right to privacy. And here's the flawed logic of that. The logic of Roe was that the doctor-patient relationship falls within the category of a right to privacy. Therefore, if a woman, along with her doctor, chose to abort her baby, the U.S. Constitution gave her that right. The Dobbs decision of last June brought an end to legally sanctioned abortion in the U.S. by that federal mandate. Now, as Jeff mentioned earlier, individual states and citizens of those states must answer the big questions raised by abortion and adopt past laws to govern its practice or to do away with it altogether. We now have that ability. But understand, as Jeff mentioned, this fight is not over for America. There should be, at the same time, no doubt, that the Dobbs decision is a blessing to this nation, and we should celebrate it, regardless of how the other side feels. It is something worth celebrating, and it is an answer to the prayers of pro-life people. This morning is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It is a day that I mark on my calendar each year uh, with the specific intention of coming before you so that we as a body can learn and be reminded that the Bible teaches with profound clarity that every human being from conception to natural death is to be respected as a person created in the image of God. We believe that all human life has dignity and and is worthy of protection. 
And we also know that this is a, a big issue, and there are all kinds of different debates, and, and there are all kinds of different laws that are going to bear their weight on this decision or this discussion. But it's also clear for us as Christians that throughout the written word of God, he has made it clear that all human life is precious at every stage. And because of this, we believe that human life should be celebrated, protected, fought for, cherished, and valued. From migrants fleeing oppression and seeking the opportunities that America affords, to children going to school in Uvalde, to young boys and young girls being trafficked for sex all over this country and all over our world, to disabled babies being selectively discarded in the womb, to every other child in the womb, all human life is worthy of love and dignity and protection and the acknowledgement that they are, in fact, a human being. So today, what I want us to do is I want us to consider what it's going to look like for us to maintain pro-life convictions in a post-Roe America. I want us to consider some of the basic questions that are raised in this debate. And I want to remind you of a few basic biblical truths that help us to answer the most important question with confidence, and that is, when does life begin? So, being pro-life in post-Roe America. You probably noticed, if you paid any attention to this debate, you probably noticed that over the last decade or so, efforts have ramped up by pro-life groups and pro-life individuals who are on the front lines seeking to defend unborn life and, and just basically get the word out and to spread information to our generation. Efforts have ramped up. There have been groups that have gone undercover to record and publish the chilling discussions of Planned Parenthood directors in their lust for money and complete disregard for the destruction of unborn life. Some of you have seen those things. Others have made a significant impact in the cause of protecting unborn life, like Lila Rose. Have y'all ever heard of Lila Rose? Passionate, brilliant young lady. She is the president of Live Action. It's a pro-life organization committed to defending the rights of the unborn by engaging in the public square as well as online. And Lila was recently a guest on the Dr. Phil show. I didn't even know that Dr. Phil was still doing it, but he's still doing it. And, and in the debate, or in the discussion, obviously it was centered around the pro-life, pro-choice debate. In the, in the midst of that, the host, Dr. Phil himself, insisted that the scholarly literature suggests that scientists really don't know when life begins. And Rose informed him that that was simply not the case. 96% of embryologists agreed that life begins at conception. And Dr. Phil responded saying, well, the the scientific consensus does not mean that life begins at conception. And either Dr. Phil hasn't truly read the scientific literature or he is denying it in favor of his own opinion. So much for follow the science, right? If you have followed this debate over the the years, then you know that the scientific consensus is largely ignored by the pro-abortion side. The conversation quickly devolves into emotional rants or unfounded accusations, all the while the facts go unnoticed. And living in a post-Roe culture 
as committed pro-life Christians means that we must anticipate these types of responses. When we're trying to spit facts, they want to ignore the facts and get emotional about it. And we have to do this, according to 1 Peter 3, by being zealous for what is good with gentleness and respect. I believe without reservation that the pro-life position is good. It is good to defend the unborn. It is good to defend and oppose the, defend life and, and oppose the destruction of human life in the womb. It is good to stand firm in the truth, regardless of who is opposing it. And that's what we've been called to do. And by the way, it is nothing new for the medical consensus to state that human life begins at conception. This is not a new phenomenon. In September of 1970, the editors of the journal California Medicine noticed the, and I'm quoting here, the curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows, that human life begins at conception and is continuous whether intra or extra uterine until death. Close quote. That was 1970, Journal of California Medicine. In 1981, a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee invited the scientific experts from all around the world to testify about this issue, about specifically the beginning of life. And here is a list of quotes from that hearing. Dr. Michelin Matthews Roth, Harvard University Medical School, quote, In biology and in medicine, it is an accepted fact that the life of any individual organism reproducing by sexual reproduction begins at conception or fertilization. It is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. Close quote. Jerome Lejeune, professor of genetics at the University of Descartes in Paris and the discoverer of the chromosomal pattern of Down syndrome, quote, to accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new human has come into being is no longer a matter of taste, nor opinion. The human nature of the human being from conception to old age is not a metaphysical contention. It is plain experimental evidence. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception, close quote. Here's another one, Dr. Jaime Gordon, professor at the Mayo Clinic. But now we can say unequivocally that the question of when life begins is no longer a question for theological or philosophical dispute. It is an established scientific fact. Theologians and philosophers may go on to debate the meaning of life or the purpose of life, but it is an established fact that all life, including human life, begins at the moment of conception. By all the criteria of modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. Close quote. The scientific consensus has been this way for a long, long time. Here's a more modern quote. Diana Irving, a biochemist and biologist who is a professor at Georgetown University, writes this. Scientifically, something very radical occurs between the process of gametogenesis and fertilization. The change from a simple part of one human being, the sperm, and a simple part of another human being, the egg, becomes a new, genetically unique, newly existing individual, a whole living human being. And just in case we missed it, 
She goes on and says, that is, upon fertilization, parts of the human beings have actually been transformed into something very different from what they were before. They have been changed into a single whole human being. At the point of fertilization or conception. Today we have amazingly vivid understanding of life in the womb. Intrauterine ultrasound images have confirmed that at only eight weeks, an unborn baby sucks his or her thumb, responds to sound, will recoil from a pinprick. By eight weeks of gestation, all of the organs are present, the brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood cells with that, that child's unique DNA, and the kidneys are cleaning bodily fluids, and the baby has a fingerprint at eight weeks. This is not up for debate. Most abortions in the U.S. occur after eight weeks. And we have the science on our side. The Dobbs decision, though, has done nothing to change this science. This has long been understood in the scientific community. These facts are glaring and they are amazing, but they are quickly tossed aside by politicians and lawmakers by women protesting in the streets, by news media and talk show hosts. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to be pro-life in a post-row America, we cannot toss the truth aside. We must insist that the scientific facts bear their weight on this discussion. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. Societies have always been, at some level, hostile to children. The world has always been hostile to babies, unborn or born, specifically in the ancient world. In the ancient world, mortality rates were incredibly high. Just a couple of hundred years ago, mortality rates were incredibly high compared to today's standards. And the world was a very dangerous place for little babies. In our not-too-distant past, large numbers of children were stillborn or died during childbirth. And if kids made it through childbirth, they often went hungry because resources were scarce and having one more mouth to feed was almost too much for many families. And so in the ancient world, there were ways that families, that people came up with in order to deal with this problem. They would abandon their newborn children. They would expose them to the elements. Or in some cases, like in the Roman culture, they would be left on trash heaps to die. There have always been unwanted children in a variety of ways that sinful humans have sought to discard them. The ancient Greeks, the ancient Spartans, the ancient Romans, they thought very little of babies. And they did not hesitate to get rid of them. But throughout human history, there have been laws reflecting or revealing our human understanding that the child in the womb is in fact a human being worthy of protection and dignity. So in other words, what I'm saying is, this has always been a debate. This has been going on for a long time. In the 16th century BC, the Mosaic law handed down by God in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, shows that the same penalty should be given for the injury of an unborn child as it was to an adult who was murdered. In the 12th century BC, Tiglath-Pileser, he was the king of Assyria, he punished women who caused themselves to abort. 
In the 4th century BC, the Greek physician Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine, you've probably heard of the Hippocratic Oath at some point, first do no harm, that's attributed to him and to his followers. And he, he says this, I quote, I will neither give a deadly drug to anyone if asked for, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give to a woman an abortive remedy. This is the fourth century BC. First century AD, the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria condemned abortion together with the practices of infanticide and child abandonment, which were common in the Roman uh, Empire at that particular time. The Didache, have you ever heard of the Didache? It's an early document that is reported to have been the teaching of the twelve apostles, and it stated this, thou shalt do no murder, right? That's, that's a reflection of one of the Ten Commandments. And then it gives us an explanation of what that looks like in all these different phases. And in one particular place, it says, thou shalt not procure abortion nor commit infanticide. This is not a new problem, and this is not a new debate. This is not a new issue. It's been going on for a long, long, long time. In the second century, the Christian apologist Athenagoras wrote, how can we kill a man when we are those who say that all who use abortifacients are homicides and will account to God for their abortions as for the killing of men? For the fetus in the womb is not an animal and it is God's providence that he exists, close quote. Tertullian, you've probably heard of Tertullian at some point. He was another second century Christian apologist. He declared this, For us indeed as homicide is forbidden, it is not lawful to destroy what is in the womb while the blood is still being formed into a man. There's, there's a, a, a fairly unscientific understanding of what's going on, but however, there is still a knowledge of what is in the womb being something worthy to protect. To prevent being born is to accelerate homicide. Nor does it make a difference whether you snatch away a soul which is born or destroy, destroy one being born. He who is man to be is man, as all fruit is now in the seed. I could just continue on with this. I hope you know that. I, I will in this sense. In, in the fourth century, it was St. Augustine who was arguing against abortion and for the recognition of human life. In the 13th century, it was Thomas Aquinas. In, in the 16th century, it was John Calvin. All of them considered abortion to be immoral and unthinkable for the Christian. In the ancient world, the law of God prohibited abortion and infanticide, and from the first century until today, Christians specifically have opposed the killing of children through abortion, exposure, or infanticide. And it is well known, probably you know that, it is well known that in the Roman first century and second century, within the Roman Empire, Christians would go to those trash heaps and they would rescue children who had been left out to die. And they would adopt them and care for them because they believed themselves to have a moral responsibility to care for widows and orphans, to care for those who are being oppressed. And they did that. It's not wrong for us to do the same. Kevin DeYoung is right when he states this. Opposition to abortion and infanticide is not simply one position Christians might want to consider. It is the Christian position. And it is because God's word has never changed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In his law, God prohibits the taking of innocent human life, even when society allows it. Abortion may be legal in some states and in nations, 
but it is wicked in the eyes of God. And I've preached on this issue for 13 years, just trying to expose it from every angle. This is nothing new for those of you who are home folks. We know this because the Bible witnesses to the value of all human life, even when that life is still in the womb. Let me give you a couple of passages of scripture. I know there are many. I'll give you just a few. In Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is a unique psalm. It's not unique in the sense that its author is unique. David wrote many psalms, but in Psalm 51, David is particularly broken over his sin with Bathsheba. He's painfully aware of the corruption that lies in his heart that led him into that sin, and he makes it clear in this psalm that his corruption is what drove him to that sin. And the corruption in his heart didn't result from the act of sin. He committed the sin because there was sin in his heart. And he states that even as an adult, he says, even when I was in the womb, that corruption was present. Psalm 51 and verse 5, he says, look, I was guilty of sin from birth, a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. The point David is making is is to say that he was a sinner, but along the way, he is also saying something about the the life in the womb, that there there is something unique here. His personal existence began with his conception. The moral component of his humanity was present in the womb. By God's design, all of the components necessary to make life are there and present in the womb, the moral component, the intellectual component, the spiritual component, they're all present in their infant stages at the moment of conception because a human life is a human person. Humanity and personhood are present in the womb. You can't separate those two things out even though many who debate this issue want to. In Psalm 139, as another psalm of David, David is singing about God's intimate knowledge of his creation and his involvement even in the very tiny details of human life. And in the very middle of the song, David gives us a picture of God's work inside the womb. When he says in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14, For you, O Lord, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The work of God in creating a human person in the womb is a sacred work, as Cody reminded us earlier. God molds us and he knits us together for his glory with intention and purpose, even the finest details of who we are. And his work inside the womb involves the creativity and the beauty that only God can bring to that work. And the finished product is marked by all of the planning that went into it along the way. The Bible is clearly telling us, and, and, and I mentioned earlier that there were laws protecting the unborn child that, that were similar or actually equal to the laws protecting life outside the womb. The scriptures are continuously telling us that God's work of, of bringing life to bear, bringing life into being happens in the womb. God has a purpose for every one of us. He fashions us in the womb in such a way that he is preparing us for what is to come. Every child, born or unborn, matters to God more than we know and infinitely more than our culture wants to recognize. So much has changed in our world in just a few months. The Dobbs decision has certainly stirred this debate up 
And there are going to be more debates to come. And there are going to be decisions that are going to be settled. There are going to be all kinds of things happening. And we need to understand this. This fight is not over. This discussion is not over. This debate is not over. The desire and the need for us to fight for unborn life is still present. Because we're still called to follow Jesus on that narrow road. We're still called to care for widows and orphans. We're still called to shine as lights in the world, this dark world. We're called to bear witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus and to God's unchanging truth in general, specifically the truth about the sanctity of human life. And the Apostle Paul gives us at least some idea of what that might look like when he tells us what I read earlier. In your hearts you must honor Christ as Lord and holy, always being prepared to make a defense. And when you do so, you do it with gentleness and respect. You have a good, clear conscience when you do this. And when you are slandered, as those who revile your good behavior in Christ are wont to do, when they seek to put you to shame, understand something. It's better to suffer for doing good. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And we're called to do something good. So what must we do? What does it look like to respond to this? Other than to fill our minds with truth and be reminded of some things and to consider what it looks like for us to live in the culture that we now live in, what practical steps would I encourage you to take in order to be faithful in this calling? Number one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our only hope because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And I don't know where your life has taken you to lead you to this point, what your experience has been, what your involvement in this issue has been. But we all need to know, we all need to hear that the love of God is extended to all who will come to Christ with the empty hands of faith in repentance. And that includes the individual who has abortion in her past or his past in some cases or the individual who has never really considered this issue. Or maybe you have considered this issue. Maybe you've stood in those debates, and you've stood for pro-choice rather than pro-life. Or maybe you've held to a pro-life position as long as you can remember. Being pro-life doesn't make you a Christian. Trusting in Christ does. And he offers himself to all who will come and humble themselves and recognize their sin and their need and turn from their sin and trust in him. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, pray. Pray. I believe that the decision, the Dobbs decision handed down in June of last year was in much, in many ways, an answer to the prayers of God's people. Not just here in this country, but all over the world. And let's continue to pray and seek the heart of God and pray that God would protect the unborn child in the womb and that he would empower us to do the same. Pray for yourself. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for this church family. Pray for our city. Pray for Wiley specifically and the community around Wiley. Pray for our political leaders. Pray for our president. We know where he stands on this issue. Pray that God will change his heart. Pray for our judges. Pray that more and more states would adopt laws that recognize the human life in the womb and vow to protect it. Pray that God would continue to open our eyes to the wickedness of abortion and the beauty and sanctity of all human life. Pray. And then another thing we can do is we can love. Because God has loved us with an infinite love and has given us a salvation that we have 
no, we, we don't deserve. We've done nothing to earn it. Because God has loved us in this way, he also calls us to love others, not just one another, but even our neighbors, even our enemies with that same sacrificial love. We are to love them in such a way that they see our good deeds and bring glory to God. So as we engage with those on the other side of this debate, we are to do so with gentleness and respect, like Peter tells us, but also with a heart of love. We need to love our neighbors who are caught in in the situation they find themselves in with an unborn child in the womb and they feel trapped and they feel helpless and they have nowhere to turn. We need to love them. We need to listen to them. We need to show love especially to people who are on the front lines of this debate like Lila Rose and crisis pregnancy centers all over the country. We can help them in our love with financial gifts or supporting them through prayer or maybe volunteering our time and joining them in this fight. And having said that, we need to believe, we need to pray, we need to love, and we need to act. You probably noticed that there's a large RV sitting out there in the parking lot. Through our partnership with the Hope Women's Center in McKinney, which we've partnered with them for over a decade now, you can volunteer to staff that mobile pregnancy testing unit that is parked just outside our doors. Not everyone's going to do that. That's fine. We've already sent out a message. We've had more than 10 people sign up wanting to be a part of that ministry. We've been working with Aaron and Holly Snell. They were here with us last year and and spoke at one of our church conferences. And we're ready to take the next step of placing that unit in Wiley under our care and administration as a church. What we need at this point is to recruit a team of volunteers. They anticipate the unit being in operation only one or possibly two days a week for a few hours a day. We don't know the time frame. What's going to happen is as clients reach out to them through their website or other means, if they are in this local area, then we will have that unit available so that those individuals who are seeking help in the midst of their crisis, they can come and they can seek counseling, they can, they can see a medical professional who's going to perform an ultrasound, and they'll have a, 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 an advocate in the RV with them to talk through these issues, to speak to them, to encourage them, to pray for them. And, and we need that in our area, and we can do this. 100% we can do this. Sometime in the next several weeks, we plan to have uh, Aaron and Holly Snell from the Hope Center come here, join us probably on a Wednesday evening to talk in more detail about these roles, the various roles that you can play. But if you're interested, here's what I want to ask you to do. As we close in in worship, as we sing in in praise to God, and as we leave, as we fellowship, you can go out to the RV. You can go out there, a couple of us are going to be there. Uh, Jeremy Dice and Russ Rice have put in an inordinate amount of time into trying to make this happen. And I hope they'll be out there to answer questions. I'll be out there, some of the elders, some of the, some of the ladies that have already responded and said, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Come out there, you can look at the RV and kind of see how it's set up. We can't put everybody on there, but we can look at it. Just so that you can get some idea in your mind of what it's going to look like if you're going to volunteer your time. So come out there, ask questions. We'll sign you up if you want to be a part of that. But this is a great opportunity that we have prayed for and men and women have worked hard for to give us as a small church in the middle of a field an opportunity to make a difference in our community practically. So I'm going to close with a quote from John Frame. He says this to to us as a church, the issue of abortion makes a strong demand on the Christian's attention, 
time, passion, and energy. We need to do something. None of us can do the job that needs to be done alone. But we still need to do something. Close quote. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to empower us and enable us and motivate us to do something. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the, the evidence that is manifest in the world around us on this particular issue. And this is a, a 40 minute sermon. I can't address every question and every debate and every what if, but we can clearly understand the most important question from your word. The most important question in this debate is when does life begin? And your word makes it clear. Science makes it clear. So Lord, help us to be motivated by the truth. Help us to have a heart of compassion and love and help us to be willing to give our time, to give our passion, to give our energy, to give our commitment, not just as individuals, but as a church to this effort. I pray that you would equip us and bless us. I pray that you would accomplish your purpose through us. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.